The following podcast contains mature language and discussions that are not suitable for younger audiences. The opinions voiced in this podcast are our own. We are not experts on the topic we present, but have conducted our own research. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to the Strange and Undecided podcast. I'm your host, Jarrett, joined by my co-host. I am Pat. This is episode three. Welcome back, folks. We've got a real doozy for you today. That we have do. a murder case, I believe. Correct, Jarrett? A Canadian thriller from Winnipeg. Classified as a mystery, is it? We'll get to the specifics of that later, but it might be a murder, it might not. Well... You're here in the right place, folks. Exactly. So let's get into it. In 1928, the city of Winnipeg wriggled free from the cold grasp of winter. Daylight lasted longer, and people emerged from their winter slumber to enjoy the warmer weather. On April 25th, five-year-old Julia Johnson played with her tennis ball near her home while waiting for a neighborhood friend to get home from school. Only her friend would never meet to play with her as Julia had disappeared without a trace. Okay. A child, a child case. That's uh, always sad. So just a background to start with. Julia Johnson, a shy and happy little girl, was born to immigrant parents, Mr. and Mrs. Anton Johnson. They lived at 138 Austin Street in central Winnipeg, just west of the Red River that runs through the middle of the city. This was a tight-knit, blue-collared community with many European immigrants. Back then, neighbors would look out for one another. Even though Julia was a shy girl, she was often seen playing with kids along her street and having fun. Behind Julia's house stood the Green River Building at 187 Sutherland Avenue. It had been vacated a few weeks earlier by the NP Beverage Company. So I did a little bit of research on this and I couldn't really find a whole lot of information, but when I Googled NP Beverage Company, some Korean founded company that packs beverages came up, but nothing to do with being in Winnipeg back at that time. However, other research articles confirmed that there actually was an NP Beverage Company that operated in that building at the time. Well, clearly it wasn't very good because we're not drinking NP Colas today, so. Yeah, you're not wrong. This now abandoned building was off limits to Julia as well as other kids for that matter, and they were repeatedly warned not to go and play there. Okay, we're going in there. Like me and you, Jared, like as kids, that's we're told not to go in there. We're going in there. Oh, absolutely. So when I assume I, that's maybe what these kids have done in our story today. The lot between the Johnson home and the Green River building was rented by blacksmiths in the area and was used to store wagons that used to haul that were used to haul scrap. April 25th, Julia went outside to play with a tennis ball while she waited for her friend Elizabeth to get home from school. What a 1920s thing just to play with a tennis ball and just to be completely satisfied. Yeah, that's... A no much no iPads, thing. just a tennis ball. I think I would prefer that. Like a much simpler time. Like when I was a kid, you'd go outside and you'd play with the ball. There wasn't any screen time for the most part, like the occasional movie that you'd sit and watch, but... Jesus, Jarrett, you're, you're dating ourselves. Uh, no, I didn't say the exact date. <laughs> we we played with tennis balls, guys. Okay, from, you you caught us. It could range from nineteen like sixties all the way to like the two thousands. Like whenever the iPod was invented, that's where the cutoff is. <laughs> <laughs> she was wearing a red and black dress, brown toque, 
black shoes and fawn stockings. When her mother went to go look for her outside, she was nowhere to be found. Mrs. Johnson was alarmed because of how shy Julia was and how she never liked to be far from home. Eventually, more and more people such as Boy Scouts, kids, and others from the neighborhood joined in the search, but to no avail. They searched down alleys and nearby parks and even checked the sewers. It seemed as though Julia Johnson had simply disappeared. Mrs. Johnson then contacted the police department. At approximately 4.30 p.m., Constable Thomas McKim answered the call about the disappearance and spent the rest of his shift searching for the little girl. The police even brought in a trained dog to sniff around Julia's home. Interesting they had dogs back then. I didn't know that. Yeah, they had some for cases, but like they didn't have access to a lot of other forensic techniques. So I think they relied on dogs for a lot of their kind of, if you had to find something or someone. Okay, well, I stand corrected. Dogs were the most sophisticated forensic tool back then. Apparently. Don't quote me on that, but that might be the case. The police weren't really confident in the dog finding anything for the most part. The police noted that the Green River building was behind the Johnson home and checked it due to the wagon lot being an apparently popular hangout spot. Constable McKim and Julia's brother John checked the building and found that it was locked and nothing was unusual in the yard. One of the blacksmiths who rented the lot between the Green River building and the Johnson home was a man by the name of Nathan Toplinski, who worked as a smithy located at 190 Sutherland Drive. Toplinski was questioned as he was known to chase the kids off the wagons in the lot so they would not hurt themselves. Police were able to establish a rough timeline of Julia's whereabouts and who she interacted with before she disappeared. Starting with Toplinski, he told police that at 2 p.m. he spotted kids in the wagon lot as he left work. He knew Julia and the family, so he was able to confirm she was in the wagon lot. He even told her not to play too close to his smithy, and she heeded his warning. Between 3 and 3.30, Julia went outside to play with her tennis ball near her home while she waited for her friend Elizabeth to get home from school, and during this time she was spoken to by her mother as well as Mrs. A.J. Newmark and her son. At 3.50 p.m., Pauline Crawl, who was Elizabeth's mom and a close friend of the Johnsons, heard a noise that sounded like a tennis ball being tossed against the house, and her house was located at 136 Austin Street, so right next door. Poking her head out of the second-story window, she saw Julia. Julia asked her when her daughter would come home so she could play with her, stating that she was lonesome. Mrs. Crawl told her not to go anywhere since she would be home any moment. Julia responded saying, no, I won't. I'm just playing here. She also told her to play like a good girl in the meantime. Approximately five minutes later, Mrs. Crawl's son, Alfred, came home and asked her if she had seen Julia as Miss Johnson was looking for her. She told her son that they had just talked, so both of them went outside to join the search. Unfortunately, Julia was not able to be located by nightfall, and the search was called off. They hoped that she had just ran off and said she would be getting hungry by now and would come home soon. Neighbors dispersed and Mrs. Johnson was left alone. Officers still patrolled the area throughout the night in hopes of finding something. The next day on April 26th, the police began to think that foul play may have been involved. This theory sparked the detective division to be brought into the investigation. The case was handed off to Inspector R.R. R. McDonald who was in charge of the North End E Division. 
and was assisted by Chief of Detectives George Smith, Sergeant of Detectives Fred Batho, Detective Sergeant Charles McIver, and Detective Alex Kolomick. With very little to work with, the detectives were at a huge disadvantage. Detectives were disturbed when they pried at the idea of her being abducted. If she had in fact been abducted, then it was done so in an extremely short time frame as there was only a five-minute gap between when she was last seen and when she disappeared. No commotion was made which could indicate that if she was abducted, it could have been someone she knew or trusted. Door-to-door searches began by detectives, where they interviewed as many neighbors as they could. What detectives were able to discover was that an older, unshaven man wearing dark clothing and ranging in age from 45 to 65 was spotted in the area. He was also described as having a Eastern European appearance. I'm not sure what that means, but I guess at the time that's how they just described him. You can tell. As an Eastern European myself, we know. We know each other. Every person who witnessed this individual was taken to Rupert Street Station to look at a photo lineup of potential suspects. Unfortunately, all of the witnesses identified men who were already in police custody or when brought in for questioning were easily eliminated as suspects. Back to square one. Days turned into weeks, and the Johnsons were obviously devastated by the disappearance of their daughter. They weren't a rich family, but still put up a reward of $50, which equates to about $869.34 now. This was a large sum of money at the time. Eventually, the Free Press, Winnipeg Tribune, Winnipeg City Council, and the Winnipeg Police Commission made donations, increasing the reward to a whopping $2,000, which is about $34,773.72. Okay, so if you happen to abduct a child in hopes of a ransom, it's a pretty good amount. Yeah, that's a lot of money back then, especially for people in this community as well, being blue-collar. They weren't making a whole lot of money. As expected, tips came flying in, and people as far away as California and British Columbia mailed in information pertaining to the case. Naturally, these tips led nowhere. Two weeks later, mediums and spiritualists claimed to have made contact with Julia, saying she was being kept in a pink house in Lockport, that she was being kept for sacrifice for occult groups, or being kept alive in a sewer. Once again, these tips led to nothing. Mrs. Johnson did not cope well during this time, and the press reported she had taken to her bed while Mr. Johnson kept searching for their daughter. I'm assuming in a immense state of depression yeah like grief yeah grief is like the ultimate lowest emotion you just have no energy for anything absolutely horrible however legitimate tips did come in and were followed up on one tip involved the neighbor with an extensive criminal background when he was questioned by detectives he was anything but cooperative He refused to talk to police when asked about Julia's disappearance. The police didn't have any concrete evidence against him, only a hunch, so they released him even though he was being extremely suspicious. So I have a couple notes here. Why would an innocent man refuse to talk? Was he scared the police would accuse him because of his history, or is he actually guilty? What do you think? Sounds pretty guilty to me. That's my initial thought. Like, why, if you were asked about somebody would you not want to help yeah a little a little child wouldn't you want to be as helpful as possible well you could even say no 
like, no, I haven't seen her. Like, I'm sorry. I wish I could be more help. And he just was like, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. Okay. So clearly this guy's our number one suspect here. He actually makes himself more suspicious. During the summer of 1929, this individual faked his own drowning in the Red River and fled to Seattle. I actually knew somebody who did that. Actually? Yeah. Who? Don't say names. An ex's uncle. Really? Yeah, he faked his own death and moved uh, across the country. Did he get caught? Yeah. Oh, man, maybe we'll have to do a podcast about him. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he eventually got into trouble in Seattle, and uh, Seattle, Washington, by the way, and police then were able to find out his true identity. He was promptly sent back to Winnipeg, where he was questioned yet again by the police about Julia's disappearance. Once again, he was uncooperative and refused to talk to them, but they had no choice but to let him go. After this, it was reported that the police didn't bother contacting him anymore and just dropped him as a suspect. Yeah, that's not okay. No, you can't just be like, oh, well, he's... He's not, not cooperating, so uh, we're done trying, so... Yeah. All right. From what I saw, and again, obviously I wasn't there. This is 1928, but from what I read... That's... I don't know, you're pretty old, Jared. You... Yeah, I'm a little bit old. You're older than I am. <laughs> I'll point that out. <laughs> Wiser. Yep. So Halloween came around, and at night, Mrs. Johnson sat in the dark, waiting for her daughter to come home. The Winnipeg Free Press stated, Mrs. Johnson had been nursing a hope for the past few weeks that perhaps Julia had been kidnapped and held away for spite, that the guilty person might consider the punishment sufficient and endeavor to return her to the vicinity of her home on Halloween night, when masks would make the venture look like another Halloween prank. Julia obviously did not come home that night, and her mother sank into a deeper depression. That's very sad that your last ounce of hope is that she'll be returned on Halloween night in a mask, in like a weird plot to, you know, just get your hopes up. Like clearly it's, it's very uh, kind of far-fetched, right? It is, definitely. I can't even imagine... Like the grief, the anguish, the just sadness she was experiencing on a daily basis and for so long. Oh, yeah. Like, understandable, you're going to make things up to make you feel better. Yeah. But yeah, reading that part of the story, I was like, wow, like you had to really, it's, it's a huge stretch for something like that to actually happen. Like, she's concocted this story to give herself hope. I guess the human body is designed to do that, to find coping mechanisms for, for stress. But man. Sometime in November, Dr. A. Maximilian Langser, a famous criminologist, was touring through Canada and was able to meet Mrs. Johnson. He told her that the child was still alive. He also stated that he would be the one to find her. Claims of using his psychic thought process to solve crimes were made, and much to everyone's disappointment, didn't work, and he was not able to hold true to his promise. Did he have a prior history of solving crimes with psychic abilities? He allegedly solved some cases through what I found in my research. Allegedly. I'm going to use that as a very heavy word there. But from other articles that I found, he reportedly went on to conduct psychic research with indigenous groups in northern Canada and Alaska. However, there's no record of his involvement in allegedly solving any crimes during that time through psychic measures. I feel like the indigenous people would be more open to that sort of spiritual uh, 
aspect of things so so maybe he did help them oh absolutely it's kind of like our last episode on the wendigo yeah you saw that they're very deeply spiritual people and yeah. I, I feel like they're onto something i respect it wholeheartedly <clears throat> oh yeah like a lot of people uh just brush it off but no i th- they have a a long history of like cultural heritage right absolutely and, uh, they're onto something During 1929, the area bounded by the Red River and the Louise Bridge, Canadian Pacific Railway tracks, and Main Street all the way to Manitoba Street were searched thoroughly by police. They searched empty houses, stores, sheds, outhouses, train cars, and the train yards. Numerous people were questioned in the area, including children in nearby schools. That's how desperate the police got. The Green River Building... This was the abandoned building behind the Johnson home was searched by Inspector R.R. McDonald, Constable J. Beattie, and Peter Vandergraaff. Years passed, and the hope of finding Julia faded. Police continued to follow up on Leach, which led to disappointment after disappointment. Newspaper published stories about Julia's disappearance every year, adding to the mystery and intrigue of the case. Almost nine years later, on March 22, 1937, a machinist by the name of Wilfred Adams was hired by the Muzine, Muzine, apologize if I said that wrong, and Blythe Machinist Company to fix up the Green River building and get it back into working order. This company would be the first to use it since it shut down before Julia's disappearance. Adams was tasked with dismantling the boiler in the basement. It had been disconnected and pushed over to one wall. At 2 p.m., Adams cut open the combustion chamber of the boiler and found the well-preserved and mummified remains of a young girl in the ash. A toque lay with her along with a tennis ball. Julia Johnson had been found. Oh, no. Chief Constable George Smith, Deputy Chief Charles McIver, Detective Sergeant Robert Hamilton, Detective Dave Nicholson, Constables Waters and Linton, as well as Coroner H.M. Speechley arrived at the scene to investigate further. What they found was disturbing, to say the least. She was fully clothed and lay in a bent U-shape with her feet almost touching her head. One shoe was on her foot while the other was off. Her ulna and radius bones were separated at the elbow. X-rays taken later showed that she had a fractured pelvis. Her neck was also examined for signs of strangulation, however, nothing was found. So through my research that I've found, usually signs of strangulation could be bruising on the skin, but also there's the hyoid bone in your neck that in cases of strangulation is usually broken. Well, well, in this case, she's badly decomposed and you, you wouldn't be able to tell anything on the skin, right? So basically she was, the, she was... the hyoid is the only viable uh, way of determining at this point whether she was strangled or not, right? Yeah, she said she was, uh, through my research, she was very well preserved mm-hmm. from where she was, which is very strange. Even at, even well preserved, though, after that many years bruising, like that wouldn't show up on skin, I don't think, right? No, at least from my limited understanding of it, I would assume that, no, nothing would show up. So they probably checked something like that, saw that it was intact, not broken. The blood would just pull at the lowest point, right? So blood is a bruise, so... It was yeah. just drained to the lowest point of the body. I actually read a story the other day, and it was really sad as well. But 
I guess there was some logging company out in the woods. I'm not sure exactly where, but uh, they were chopping down trees. And when they cut down this one really big tree, they found a perfectly mummified dog inside the tree. And I guess what happened is that back in the day when they used dogs to hunt, uh, more commonly, this dog took off into the woods and chased something up the tree and got stuck inside ah. the tree and it died there, which is like, it made me like really a hollow sp- tree. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I actually saw a video exactly what you're describing, but the dog was alive. They were rescuing the dog. They chopped this tree down because they knew the dog was inside. Oh, and the dog crawled ending. out. Yeah. A happy ending. But unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending. Journalists reported that, quote, it lay crouched at the far end of a rusty old boiler in the basement of a warehouse at 187 Sutherland Avenue within 60 feet of the Johnson's back fence, end quote. The Winnipeg Free Press reported, quote, the theory that Julia might have crawled into the boiler in which her remains were discovered Monday afternoon was exploded when it became fairly plain that she had been shoved in there. Her assailant, apparently, had placed the end of a pole or possibly a long pipe against her stomach and shoved her to the far end of the rusted metal boiler. That much, at least, was revealed by the bent position of the skeleton. Police had also found a long, rusty pole on the floor beside the boiler. Forensic techniques were still a very new investigative tool at the time, and her body was sent to the University of Manitoba, where Dr. Daniel Nicholson of the pathology department performed his tests. Julia's clothing was tested for blood and semen, and all that was found was a small amount of blood on one stocking. This event turned from a missing persons case to a murder case. The case reopened after Julia's body had been found, and the first task was to determine who had access to the Green River building. If you remember earlier, the building was locked up the day of Julia's disappearance. The last occupants of the building was the NP Beverage Company, owned by a man by the name of Walter Hamilton. The building was closed April 7, 1928, only 18 days before Julia went missing. Police contacted Hamilton and asked him who had access to the building. He indicated that there were only two keys, and they were both in the possession of John Goodwin of the Montreal Trust Company. He was the rental manager of the building. Police located Godwin in Toronto and questioned him about the case. He told police that he remembered the case at the time and checked on the building and also found it secured just like the police did. Godwin also said he had gone across the street to the blacksmith shop to leave a building key with them so the hydrometers could be accessed and potential tenants could view the building. Godwin stated that he talked with both Nathan Toplinski and his partner Abraham Bolstein. Toplinski had been the one who agreed to keep a key and hung it on a nail in the doorpost for future use. Godwin mentioned that he used the key many times but always put the key back when he was finished. The day Julia disappeared, Godwin said he was sure the key was on the nail. The next order of business for police was to talk to William Clark, the Winnipeg hydrometer reader, who read the meter in the Green River building. He told police that he obtained the key from Abraham Bolstein at the blacksmith shop. Once finished, he returned the key to their shop. Unfortunately, the two officers, Inspector R.R. MacDonald, died in 1936, and Constable Beattie died in 1932. If you remember from earlier, these two investigated the Green River building. Therefore, it was impossible to learn how they entered the building to search back in 1929. At this point, on April 8, 1937, Detective Sergeant Hamilton and Detective Nicholson brought Bolstein and Toplinski into Rupert Street Station for further questioning. 
Toplinsky stated, just as he did in 1928, that he had seen Julia playing with other children around his wagons at around 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. He chased them off, and that was the last time that he saw her. The most surprising part of the interview was his denial that the Green River building key was ever left to the blacksmith shop. When pressed on this point, he became nervous and started to cry, but maintained that the key was never there. Volstein also denied that the key had ever been left in their shop. He stated he had not seen Julia on the day she disappeared. Police tracked down a former employee of the blacksmith shop in 1928 and found him in Toronto, a man by the name of Isaac Salmanon. This employee confirmed the existence of the key and also confirmed that it had been kept on a nail on the doorpost. However, he denied having any knowledge of what the key was used for. He also denied having seen Julie on the day she disappeared. As the investigation continued, an inquest was made regarding the evidence. All of the evidence known at the time was presented to a jury, and the jury's findings was, quote, From the evidence submitted, we, the jury, find that the deceased Julia Johnson's death was from causes unknown, and we are entirely dissatisfied with the conflicting evidence submitted by Godwin, that's the rental manager, Clark, the meter reader, Toplinsky, and Bolstein, the blacksmiths. At this point, the case was getting cold and ultimately ground to a halt. No new evidence was turning up, and no new suspects were named. There were many theories made at the time of Julia's disappearance. Julia's parents, their friends, and neighbors all believed she was lured away by a deviant individual, but the police were hesitant to agree with them as they saw no motive. However, a police official admitted to the Tribune that it was possible that she had become a victim of a moral degenerate, though nothing further was said. To this day, the mystery of Julia Johnson remains unsolved. It is still unknown if Julia was murdered or if she had suffered a tragic accident. So many questions remain. Why did a neighbor fake his own death and flee to Seattle? Why did the blacksmiths lie about the key being in their possession? Who put Julia in the boiler? What is most important to remember in the case is that the Johnson family suffered an irreparable loss. The only consolation was that the family was able to find Julia and lay her to rest. Well then. That's a sad case, isn't it? Extremely sad. Looking through a bunch of the other cases that potentially we can do on the podcast, this one just kind of struck a chord. It's just really sad that a little five-year-old girl was basically disposed of like a piece of garbage, in my opinion. Yeah. Imagine the monster who could look a child like that, like in their innocent face and just defile her like that. Yeah, it's just people, I'm shocked that people like that exist in the world. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, just, it's so depraved and it's just, she's five years old. She's nothing but innocence. It's just really crushing to see that that is kind of taken away from not only the parents, but also from like society as well. Also, just the way that the body was disposed of. It's, it's, it's so sick, right? Yeah. Like, if, like, you could have easily done something more respectful with the body, like put it in even the dirt in a, in a grave. But like to shove it with the stick into the insides of a boiler, like who even thinks of that? So I think we should go through some of our own personal theories and kind of talk our way through. So branching off of what you just said, I guess the deliberate shoving of the body into the back of the boiler, like that just tells me right off the bat that that was intentional and they wanted to hide her. 
Yes. Clearly there is some extreme guilt for what had just happened, and they panicked, and clearly they thought nobody was going into this building ever, right? Who had the key? That's the question. That is the golden question. But that's the thing that I, when I was reading this, the two inspectors that originally went into the building back during the time of her disappearance, both of them had died before her body was discovered. So they weren't even able to ask. And I guess now you do reports after you follow up on investigation, basically. And there's always all these police reports after every incident happens. I guess they didn't do that back then. Or if they did, they didn't do anything for this because they weren't able to just look back in their notes and go, oh, this is how they got into the building, for example. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a key piece of evidence to potentially finding out how the building was accessed back in the day. Also, if you're a blacksmith, you could easily make a copy of those two keys or that one key that was in the building, right? And just have a key to yourself. Yeah, exactly. But they both denied the key being in the building. But that's the other thing. What if they... What if those two detectives went across to the blacksmith shop and questioned them and they're like, oh, here's the key to the building. That to me makes sense is how they got in the building. Because not once did the report say that Godwin was interviewed back in 1929 or 1928. The only key was in the blacksmith shop, according to Godwin and to Isaac. So you're saying the detectives had to go to the shop to get the key to investigate inside the building. That's what you're saying? If there were only two keys made, Godwin had one with him already. And I guess he didn't, or he, if he lived in the area, he had that one with him. But he said he would go to the blacksmith shop and use their key on a frequent basis. Yeah. So that's the only other place the key was. Mm. So how did the detectives get in? They didn't go talk to Godwin. So right. that just, to me, that shows that the blacksmiths lied about not having the key yeah okay so maybe the blacksmiths are involved maybe they're playing in their lot for example and julia might have been on one of the wagons or came back to play on a wagon she fell off or if he chased her off maybe he accidentally caused her death and then he got worried didn't know of another place to hide her grabbed the key shoved her body in the back i don't know it could be yeah however the thing that still weirds me out the most is the guy who faked his death and fled when he had absolutely no reason to whatsoever. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very odd thing to do. Almost sounds like maybe a mental health thing. Yeah, potentially. So I guess the two avenues there are one, he's just straight up guilty and he was trying to run away, which I would say the majority of the time somebody who is guilty would do that. But also people can think, hey, these police, they're out to get me. I have already an extensive criminal background. I know I'm going to get blamed for this. And to save his own hide, so to speak, he just took off and didn't want to say anything that would potentially incriminate himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that perspective. Like, personally, I've been totally innocent and been, like, questioned by police for something, like, totally not related to me and me just, like, being so nervous and guilty right off the bat. <laughs> I feel like that's everyone's just scared of police in general, even though that they're innocent, they're like driving, for example, you're driving, you drive like you normally do. You're going 10, 15 above the speed limit. But the second you see a cop car or a police car, you slow right down and you are scared. You are not doing anything wrong. Yeah. Stuff like that. All right. So that's going to be it for today. So overall, what did you think about this case? It's a sad one. And I feel bad for the family, even today. You know, there's like 
still relatives and descendants of this family that you know they have this in the their human the lineage tree. yeah and their lineage you know descendants of the the family like distant relatives have this in their in their past lineage it's just crazy to think that there's people alive now who are descendants of the johnson family potentially i don't know if they had any more children or if they had any brothers, like the parents had any brothers or sisters, anyone to kind of carry on the name or anything like that. But if they are still alive today, it's like, imagine that being your family legacy, having an unsolved murder case in the family. Yeah, exactly. That's scary. Right. All right, that's all we have for you tonight. Tune in next week for a new episode. Once again, thank you. And good night. <laughs>